am a seeker of truth. I really want to know and understand. I recognize that this is a value that I hold very high. As a result, I regard with trepidation the instances in our time and culture when academic experts betray the truth for political or ideological ends. I notice that there is another value, separate from truth and often inconsistent with it, that motivates such betrayals. It is the value of progress, and it comes in many forms. I value progress too, I think we all do, but our ideas of progress, what exactly we are making progress toward, is always in dispute. This is what politics is about, and I think there must always be tension among various ideas of what is most important for a society. Honest, thinking men and women are in the unenviable position of comprehending nuance. We notice that things are complex. That's okay. Such is life. But I think it is our duty as scientists to pursue the truth whatever turns up. When politics gets mixed in, it poisons our credibility as truth finders. I'll give you a hypothetical example. I don't think someone is about to discover compelling evidence that climate change is a hoax or a false alarm. But if they do, they must be able to share that fact with the rest of us. The funding and employability of the scientist who makes such a discovery must not be jeopardized such that he is forced to throw away the results. The leading hypothesis seems to be that human industrial activities are a major contributor to greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and therefore to potentially catastrophic global warming. The researcher's job is to try everything he can think of to falsify that hypothesis. To the extent that he fails, the hypothesis becomes more credible, and then, when climate scientists warn us about a growing consensus around climate change, we have reason to believe them and to take action. The same is true across all fields of study. Consider the ramifications right now for virology. The question of whether a vaccine is safe and effective does not depend on who is holding political office. I, for one, want to see a vaccine which is safe and effective. My primary concern is not about how claiming one perspective or the other influences polling numbers. I am concerned about some of the things that are going on in our culture right now, including in media and in scientific culture. I have a dog in this fight. Two dogs, really. For one, I'm a scientist, and I will not be able to succeed in a climate in which I am forced to weigh the truth versus promotion and opportunity. In such a case, I'll either be successful or I'll be a scientist, but not both. Secondly, I'm a truth seeker. I really want to know what is true. And the sacrifice of society's best truth-finding mechanisms is a major setback to that aim. I'm not saying this is what has happened, by the way. Don't throw your textbooks out just yet. I'm just concerned about the potential if we don't hold our shit together and stand up for what we know. In a previous episode, I read from Philip Goff's book, Galileo's Error, in which Goff relays this passage from Arthur Eddington, quote, if we search the examination papers in physics and natural philosophy for the more intelligible questions, we may come across one beginning something like this. An elephant slides down a grassy hillside. The experienced candidate knows that he need not pay much attention to this. It is only put in to give an impression of realism. He reads on. The mass of the elephant is two tons. Now we are getting down to business. The elephant fades out of the problem and a mass of two tons takes its place. What is this two tons? the real subject matter of the problem. It is the reading of the pointer when the elephant was placed upon a weighing machine. Let us pass on. The slope of the hill is 60 degrees. Now the hillside fades out of the problem and an angle of 60 degrees takes its place. What is 60 degrees? 
There is no need to struggle with mystical conceptions of direction. 60 degrees is the rendering of a plumb line against the divisions of a protractor, and so we see that the poetry fades out of the problem, and by the time the serious application of exact science begins, we are left with only pointer readings." Unquote. As I said then, Goff uses this to exemplify how physics cannot reveal the intrinsic nature of matter and energy. In that episode, I suggested that qualia are illusory, because the relationship between what we see and hear and whatever is really there in the universe is a feature of the mind, constructed by the brain. By contrast, I argued against the idea that consciousness itself is an illusion. It's easy enough to understand my point regarding qualia. Color is a good example. An object in the world appears to me to have a certain color, say green. The color experience is a product of the mind. By extension, the way an object feels on my skin, warm or cold, soft or rough, or prickly or slippery or whatever, is a product of the mind. These features of the object are informed by reality, but laundered through an evolved neural system of perception. In this episode, I want to consider what all of this means for the discovery of truth. Philip Goff's book introduced me to the philosophical view known as causal structuralism. This immediately intrigued me because I have described consciousness, according to my TICL framework, as a structure of causality. This philosophical view, as explained by Goff, says that physical entities are what they do. There is nothing more to them. Goff clearly disagrees with causal structuralism. To argue in favor of physical entities having necessary intrinsic natures, he provides this example. Quote, the mass of two objects creates a force between them, which all things being equal causes them to attract, i.e., to lessen the distance between them. It seems at first like the previous sentence is telling us what mass does, but to really understand the causal impact of mass, we need to know what force is and what spatial distance is. Of course, we recognize the presence of these things in our experiments as well as in ordinary experience, but the equations in physics don't tell us what the reality of these phenomena consists in. Rather, they characterize them in terms of physical properties like mass, the phenomenon we began with. In other words, we cannot understand what intrinsic physical properties like mass and charge are until we know what force and distance are, because the former are defined in terms of the latter. But until we know what mass and charge are, we cannot know what force and distance are, because the latter are defined in terms of the former. The buck is continuously passed, and an explanation of what anything is, or even what it does, is never given. This is a circularity argument against causal structuralism." Unquote. I'll admit that I had never really thought that hard about this. I'm not a physicist, and I'm not a trained philosopher. It seems that in physics, which lays the foundation for our understanding of the objective world, we are ultimately not equipped to determine what reality is. So what are all these terms to which the equations refer, and why do they work so well in practice? First of all, whatever the physical world is, its constituents, at least those we can measure, behave in regular patterns. This fact is necessary for the scientific method to work, and it clearly does. We have been able to isolate the elements, for example, and to determine the properties of individual species, like oxygen and mercury and plutonium. And we have learned that each element is related to the others and that it is similarly constituted of subatomic particles, just that the number of those subatomic particles is the only difference among them, and so on and on. This has been real progress, and you and I have never had to live in a world in which such things were unknown. We learn them from textbooks, and we're not therefore necessitated to dream up experimental methods for distilling the elements ourselves. Thank God for that. Secondly, the equations of physics tell us the relationship between two or more phenomena. To the extent that the equations really are lawful descriptions between phenomena in the world, they're incredibly informative about how our world works. 
force equals mass times acceleration. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Voltage equals current times resistance. And each phenomenon has its own standardized unit of measurement, grams or meters or volts or ohms or whatever. The measurements are real, so what more is there to say? For the pragmatist, maybe there is nothing more to say. In his essays on pragmatism from 1907, William James wrote, quote, The pragmatic method is primarily a method of settling metaphysical disputes that otherwise might be interminable. Is the world one or many, faded or free, material or spiritual? Here are notions either of which may or may not hold good of the world, and disputes over such notions are unending. The pragmatic method in such cases is to try to interpret each notion by tracing its respective practical consequences. What difference would it practically make to anyone if this notion, rather than that notion, were true? If no practical difference whatever can be traced, then the alternatives mean practically the same thing, and all dispute is idle. Whenever a dispute is serious, we ought to be able to show some practical difference that must follow from one side or the other's being right." Unquote. He goes on a bit later, quote, the rival views mean practically the same thing, and meaning other than practical, there is for us none. Ostwald, in a published lecture, gives this example of what he means. Chemists have long wrangled over the inner constitution of certain bodies called tautomerous. Their properties seemed equally consistent with the notion that an instable hydrogen atom oscillates inside of them, or that they are instable mixtures of two bodies. Controversy raged but never was decided. It would never have begun, says Ostwald, if the combatants had asked themselves what particular experimental fact could have been made different by one or the other view being correct, for it would then have appeared that no difference of fact could possibly ensue, and the quarrel was as unreal as if theorizing in primitive times about the raising of dough by yeast, one party should have invoked a brownie, while another insisted on an elf as the true cause of the phenomenon. It is astonishing to see how many philosophical disputes collapse into insignificance the moment you subject them to this simple test of tracing a concrete consequence. There can be no difference anywhere that doesn't make a difference elsewhere. No difference in abstract truth that doesn't express itself in a difference in concrete fact and in conduct consequent upon that fact imposed on somebody, somehow, somewhere, and somewhen. The whole function of philosophy ought to be to find out what definite difference it will make to you and me at definite instants of our life if this world formula or that world formula be the true one. Unquote. Isn't William James delightful? I just love the way he expresses ideas. In the same collection, there is an essay titled Pragmatism's Conception of Truth that is pertinent to the topic at hand. James defines true ideas as those that can be assimilated, validated, corroborated, and verified. This is rather different than the way we might think of ultimate truth. In that essay, he writes, quote, Let me begin by reminding you of the fact that the possession of true thought means everywhere the possession of invaluable instruments of action, and that our duty to gain truth, so far from being a blank command from out of the blue or a stunt self-imposed by our intellect, can account for itself by excellent practical reasons, unquote. Before I go on, I have to admit that I think my own obsession with the truthful account of consciousness is a kind of self-imposed command of my intellect, potentially having no practical utility at all. There is utility to me and others of similar inclination. Being evidently limited and mortal, I can't think of anything more worthwhile to spend my time on than discovering deep and mind-altering truths. Anyway, I'll read on. Quote, 
The importance to human life of having true beliefs about matters of fact is a thing too notorious. We live in a world of realities that can be infinitely useful or infinitely harmful. Ideas that tell us which of them to expect count as the true ideas in all of this primary sphere of verification, and the pursuit of such ideas is a primary human duty. The possession of truth, so far from being here an end in itself, is only a preliminary means toward other vital satisfactions. If I am lost in the woods and starved, and find what looks like a cow path, it is of the utmost importance that I should think of a human habitation at the end of it, for if I do so and follow it, I save myself. The true thought is useful here because the house which is the, this object is useful. The practical value of true ideas is thus primarily derived from the practical importance of their objects to us. Their objects are, indeed, not important at all times. I may on another occasion have no use for the house, and then my idea of it, however verifiable, will be practically irrelevant, and had better remain latent. Yet since almost any object may some day become temporarily important, the advantage of having a general stock of extra truths, of ideas that shall be true of merely possible situations, is obvious. We store such extra truths away in our memories, and with the overflow we fill our books of reference. Whenever such an extra truth becomes practically relevant to one of our emergencies, it passes from cold storage to do work in the world and our belief in it grows active. You can say of it, then, either that it is useful because it is true, or that it is true because it is useful. Both these phrases mean exactly the same thing, namely that here is an idea that gets fulfilled and can be verified. True is the name for whatever idea starts the verification process. Useful is the name for its completed function and experience. True ideas would never have been singled out as such, would never have acquired a class name, least of all a name suggesting value, unless they had been useful from the outset in this way. From this simple cue, pragmatism gets her general notion of truth as something essentially bound up with the way in which one moment in our experience may lead us toward other moments which it will be worthwhile to have been led to." Unquote. I respect the wisdom of William James, and I think that science certainly depends on thinking as a pragmatist. Scientific models are about making predictions. In order to distinguish among different models, the researcher has to design an experiment, the results of which are in the favor of one and the disfavor of another. The question I'm wondering about now is, to what extent can the scientific method produce knowledge about reality? It seems apparent that science can inform us about the relationships that obtain among things. A certain object has an expanse of 92 centimeters, a mass of 63 grams, and so on. Centimeters and grams are just standards that allow us to objectively relate two or more distances and masses, respectively. Equations allow us to relate more complex phenomena. If we could characterize the measurable properties of all classes of things in the universe, we would still be none the wiser about reality. Or would we? What if the causal structuralists are right? What if things like objects and organisms and atoms are complexes of causal processes right down to the bottom? The brain might have invented by means of evolution the very notion of objects and organisms. And we conscious humans, subject to this compelling illusion, have been living and thinking with the assumption that material is foundational. I differ from the pragmatist in that I actually find this to be an interesting question to ponder. For some stupid reason, this is deeply important to me. But if matter and energy are indistinguishable from structures of causality, then the material description is just a different way of looking at the causal description and the pragmatist would dismiss the conflict as Whistling Dixie. Donald Hoffman's book, The Case Against Reality, is not a work of pragmatic philosophy, but it is a compelling read. 
Hoffman makes the argument that physical reality, including space and time and physical objects, are not real when they are not observed. To get to this radical conclusion, he begins with mathematical models of evolution. Hoffman writes, quote, In the battle for mates and territories, some animals, including lions, chimps, humans, and scorpions, kill their rivals, but others battle with ritual or restraint. Combatants obey rules of engagement. Some snakes, for instance, sheath their fangs and wrestle. Mule deer fight antler to antler, often intensely, and take no cheap shots elsewhere on the body. Why would belligerents obey rules in such contests? Why this glaring exception to nature red in tooth and claw, and all is fair in love and war? We find the answer in a simple game in which players compete for resources, using one of two strategies, hawk or dove. A hawk always escalates a conflict. A dove backs down if an opponent escalates. All hawks and doves are equally strong. If the payoff for winning a contest is, say, 20 points, but the cost of injury is, say, 80 points, what will happen? If two hawks compete, neither backs down until one is hurt and the other wins. Because they have equal strength, each hawk wins half the time and gets 20 points for each win. But each hawk gets hurt half the time and loses 80 points for each injury. So when hawks fight each other, they lose, on average, 30 points. Their fitness suffers. If two doves compete, each wins half the time and gets 20 points. No dove is hurt. So each dove wins, on average, 10 points. Their fitness improves. If a hawk meets a dove, then the hawk wins and no one is hurt. The hawk gets 20 points for a win. The dove gets nothing. Fitness improves for the hawk, but not for the dove. Unquote. He shows a summary of the game in the form of a matrix with four squares. Then he goes on. Quote, Given these payoffs, what strategy is favored by natural selection? The answer depends on the proportion of hawks and doves. Suppose everyone is a hawk. Then everyone loses on average 30 points in each competition, a fast track to extinction. Suppose everyone is a dove. Then everyone gains on average 10 points in each competition, a fast track to greater fitness. But there is a catch. If everyone is a dove and one hawk shows up, then that hawk has a heyday. It racks up 20 points each time it competes with a dove. This is more than double the points reaped by doves. More fitness points means more offspring. So this hawk begets more hawks. But the hawk's fun must stop somewhere because, as we saw, if all players are hawks, then each loses 30 points on average. The game implodes to extinction." Unquote. Hoffman describes how evolutionary games can answer interesting questions about effective strategies in nature. He goes on to contrast the competing strategies of veridical, or truthful, perception versus perception for fitness, and derives the fitness beats truth theorem, or FBT theorem. Hoffman writes, quote, suppose there is an objective reality of some kind. Then the FBT theorem says that natural selection does not shape us to perceive the structure of that reality. It shapes us to perceive fitness points and how to get them. The FBT theory has been tested and confirmed in many simulations. They reveal that truth often goes extinct, even if fitness is far less complex, unquote. This is no great surprise if you think about it. It's sort of like imagining two learning programs that play chess. Program one is designed to win and to get better at winning. Program two is designed to understand chess. Program one will be much more efficient at beating opponents. Program two will be massive and unwieldy and have much more information, but it should not be as efficient at winning, all things being equal. But I wonder if Hoffman's analysis is a bit too black and white. Maybe the hawk versus dove situation is too simplistic. What if we are docks or hoves? Suppose that fitness and truth are not opposed to one another. 
Could it be that fitness with more truth is better than fitness with less truth for the long term? Hoffman proposes that conscious perception is an interface, like that on a computer screen. He notes that a blue icon on the screen in no way reflects the true nature of the reality occurring in the computer when we click on it. Is conscious perception like an interface? It kinda is. An apple is not really red, not really shiny and smooth or sweet. These things occur in the mind. An organism for which apples are poisonous would have a different experience. Its receptor system would likely be designed such that apples are bitter to the taste, perhaps even ugly or scary to look at. But Hoffman goes so far as to argue that the apple is not real, and beyond that, space-time is not real for the apple to exist in. Surprisingly, he makes a compelling argument for this radical position, and I think it is worth reading his book. I, w I agree with him that the apple doesn't have the properties we perceive it to have. I'll even grant that the true intrinsic properties of an apple are wildly and shockingly different than we imagine. But I think the apple, the something we perceive as an apple, is really present, whether, whether we perceive it or not. The icon is not the real operation inside the computer, but there really is an operation that occurs physically when we click the icon. Even if the real world has two spatial dimensions, or 14 dimensions, even if fundamental reality is composed of nothing more than wave functions, the object we manipulate still exists in some important sense. The physical world, whatever its nature, behaves according to laws. The value of thinking along Hoffman's lines is that we can wonder whether these laws and the physical world that follows them are fundamental. Perhaps the whole universe is an emergent property of something deeper. We are therefore learning through empiricism only what appears on the surface. Back to the question of consciousness. My project is to discover a valid theory that relates the physical universe and its laws to the phenomenon of conscious minds. Suppose we discover in time that consciousness is intrinsic to a kind of causal arrangement. Subjectivity is an emergent property of such a structure. The present discussion seems to indicate that we would thereby obtain another lawful relationship among physical phenomena, but that we would still have no depth of knowledge regarding reality. What the hell is it all composed of? In the first place, implicitly and with curiosity, I asked myself, what am I? This question is at the basis of my inquiry into consciousness. I started very much as Descartes did. I am. Of that I can have no doubt. In this life I encounter what seems to be a wide range of things and ideas, of other people and creatures. I become educated in the fields of knowledge that have been forged over centuries. Further compelled by a deep desire to understand the universe and my place in it, I read the written thoughts of philosophers and scientists. I have at my disposal these resources, my own phenomenal experience, and the writings and lectures of others. These resources are in constant renewal. I think and feel and experience new things, and I read and hear further from other people. These are the tools of which I am afforded for discovering truth, and there is no guarantee that they are adequate to the task. At least I hope that I can come to understand what I am in relation to my universe, the equation which places me in the canon of physical being. I relate to this passage from Descartes' Discourse on Method. He wrote, quote, From my childhood, I have been familiar with letters, and as I was given to believe that by their help a clear and certain knowledge of all that is useful in life might be acquired, I was ardently desirous of instruction. But as soon as I had finished the entire course of study, at the close of which it is customary to be admitted into the order of the learned, I completely changed my opinion, for I found myself involved in so many doubts and errors that I was convinced I had advanced no farther in all my attempts at learning than the discovery at every turn of my own ignorance. 
and yet I was studying one of the most celebrated schools in Europe, in which I thought there must be learned men, if such were anywhere to be found. I had been taught all that others learned there, and not contented with the sciences actually taught us, I had in addition read all the books that had fallen into my hands, treating of such branches as are esteemed the most curious and rare. I knew the judgment which others had formed of me, and I did not find that I was considered inferior to my fellows, although there were among them some who were already marked out to fill the places of our instructors. And in fine, our age appeared to me as flourishing and as fertile and powerful minds as any preceding one. I was thus led to take the liberty of judging all other men by myself, and of concluding that there was no science in existence that was of such a nature as I had previously been given to believe." Unquote. What Descartes describes is exactly what I felt upon completion of my Ph.D. It is less an imposter syndrome imposed by self-doubt in the context of others, and more a realization that the highest institutions and the greatest minds are no less imposters. Our collective claims to truth, even at the highest reaches of our culture, are less than most are positioned to appreciate. We in the academy can posture to elitism and pretend to superior knowledge and ethics, or we can admit to our ignorance and get to work discovering. After all, there is a lot of discovering to be done, and perhaps a lot more that is beyond our reach. Mm -hmm.